You may be seated in his presence, but let's uh, adopt an attitude of prayer as we contemplate this Prince of Heaven who has come. So let's bow our heads, and would you just give a moment of silence to, uh, to consider what that means for you in this season of 2022. Christmas comes and goes every year, and let's take a moment to take a breath. Could you all just sing that chorus again? Hail the, hail the, that just that chorus. Hail the, pris, the Prince of Peace. Just think about these words as I say. of heaven, Prince of peace indeed. Father, we're grateful this morning that you are in our midst. We lift up Jamon, we lift up Jasmine, we lift up Judy and all others who have unexpected news of illness that they have to journey through and deal through. And we know that your Holy Spirit has them in the palms of his hands. And that is why we need not be afraid. At the same time, Father, it's a hard journey on this side of heaven. So we thank you for your presence in our lives in this place. Uh, But you don't stay here. You don't stay in church buildings around the world. You go home with us, born in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. All the Lord's people said, amen, amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for bringing us that song. And uh, all those songs, you know, the, the hearing from the angels is that song talks about and so many Christmas carols do about the Prince of Heaven, about the Prince of Peace. Listen, there are not many, uh, Jaquina, there are not many people on the planet who will be wholly unaware uh, of Christmas Day when it comes in two weeks' time. It is pretty popular. It is pretty well known. Even for those who wouldn't celebrate it, they know it's coming. And when Christmas Day comes each year, Jamon, the, the world will pause. It will take a breath. It will stop. We even see this in the midst of war where peace is declared for a 24-hour period at Christmas just because a child is born. But then the world will start again. And it's business as usual, Zach, until next December when we do it all again, right? Unless... Unless we hear the angels' words in our text this morning, it interrupts business as usual. And I'm going to challenge all of us here at Grace City Church today to interrupt your business as usual and see what the Spirit of God will do in you as you go through this Advent season. Gervais Finn was a teacher before he became an author. And teaching, as it does, who, who are teachers in here or who have been teachers? Anybody in here? Teachers? Teachers? A few of you? Few of you? Yep. Thank you for your service. You are my heroes. I've often said teachers are my heroes. My wife was a teacher for 130 years of kindergarten. She retired last year. Uh, it wasn't quite that long, but it seems that t- way at times, doesn't it, teachers? It does. 
Well, Gervais Finn was a teacher before he became an author, and teaching gave him a treasure chest full of stories to tell. And this is true, because Sue and I would go through her kindergarten class each year, and we would come up with chapters for each class. And I could name the chapters for you, and you would get an idea. We had the bathroom boys one year. We had uh, OCD girl one year. We had, um, we had uh, uh, oh, I could go on and on and on. Wasn't prepared for that, but it does stick in my mind when you, when you really nail it down. But this teaching gave Gervais Finn many stories to tell. And as a primary school that was a, a teacher in a primary school that was associated with the Church of England, the annual nativity plays were an endless source of material. Can you imagine? And he tells the story in one of his books of a particular nativity play where a peppy little six or seven-year-old Mary, after hearing from the angel Gabriel about her assignment and her condition of pregnancy, The nativity play picks up where she has her first conversation with an eight-year-old, equally extroverted Joseph. And it goes like this in the book. Joseph enters, saying, Hello, Mary. Have you had a good day? And Mary nods dramatically, says, Yes, yes, I think it's been pretty good. Have you something to tell me? I'm having a baby. It's not yours. (laughs) And you look at that. And you look at Matthew in the text that was read this morning, and you realize that we are actually dealing with adult material here. It it has at least a PG rating, doesn't it? And tabloid editors have titles ready for the late edition, and it would be something like this, Royal Heir Spurns Bride in Quickie Divorce. And you'd know that royal heir comes from the fact that Joseph is in the line of King David, and the bride is his only his fiance, but engagement then was a legally binding pledge that you could only end in divorce in those days. And it seems that a quickie divorce was to be quiet even more than quick as we read this text. It looks, church, for all the world as though she has been unfaithful and he is a decent guy who is unwilling to shame her for her adultery. That's what we know of the story. That's what the world would see is going on in this story. But like any good story or history, the value of the backstory cannot be overstated. And if you want to be an author, make sure you're aware of the backstory of your characters. Because the divine punch in Matthew's Christmas story can be summed up in nine words in the backstory this morning that the world didn't yet know about. And my title mirrors the very first command that we hear from the angel in Joseph's dream. And my title is, Don't Be Afraid. That's the first, but I'm going to work backwards. And if you would allow me, and by the way, this is often a good way to do Bible study, is to work backwards through the text, right, Corey? This is not an unknown technique. I'm going to work backwards and get to my title at the end. So allow me to do that. The nine words we hear from the angel tell the Christmas story in a way that that drives a spoke in the wheel of business as usual. It interrupts business as usual and said, let's go home another way. Let's do it different. It stops business as usual cold if we will take it in and let it work on our hearts. Here are the first three words, and I'm going to work backwards. You're going to find them in verse 23. So look in verse 23. The first three words are this, God with us. Somebody say, God with us. Here's verse 23 again. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us with us. This angels we have heard our series titled, This is from the angel. Now the fact 
of this God with us is actually mind-bending, isn't it? It's, and don't worry if you're new to this or in any way coming to grips with, with your own sense of questions and doubts. Don't, don't worry if you're incredulous here, if you can't get your head around words like virgin and baby and Holy Spirit and Mary. And you're just in Joseph's club. Joseph belongs to that incredulous club as our text begins. Here it is back in verse 18 again. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. We, we talked about this from the Gospel of Luke last week. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Don't miss, Grace City, the colossal tension in this story. And you can grasp it best, Jamon, by just simply putting yourself in the place of Joseph. Just do that for a moment. Men and women, put yourself in the place of Joseph. What would you be thinking as you confront this news? I'm having a baby. It's not yours. What would you be thinking? The fact of it is mind-boggling. The reality of what occurs is mind-stretching. Sometimes sometimes people think of this incarnation of God with us, these three words that are so incredibly, colossally meaningful. Sometimes we think of it somehow as God somehow slips into human nature and like someone slips into a pair of jeans and work boots and comes to just repair what is broken. But, but, But it's just not like that at all. We we get this sense that we can do this in, in our lives. But the, the, the Christmas story is not like when we show up at a soup kitchen so that we can rub shoulders with, with the homeless. But then you realize when you really think about it, you don't really rub shoulders with the cold that's outside that, that they go out to next. You don't really rub shoulders with tomorrow's hunger when you're serving a meal tonight. You don't really get it, right? You're just coming alongside it, but you're not really in it. It's not like a politician, Corey, where, who, who might get inside and, and drive a tank for, for the media attention to sort of get a feel for the military. But Bob, boy, you know that they don't get a feel for the heat inside. They don't get a feel for the claustrophobia. They don't get a feel for the smell of fear on the battlefield. You just can't get that by just showing up for a moment. Grace City, it's not like that at all. When God becomes a human He'll bleed real blood. In just a few months, Joseph is going to have a real, alongside, kicking, tucked under one arm baby to raise God with us. And the discomfort of that for Joseph is mind-shocking. And it ought to be for us. It ought to be for us, because it changes our world. I often hear folks say, you know, who are sort of, looking in, in from the outside on the Christian faith, they'll say something, well, Pastor Bob, I appreciate what you do, but, but I like to think of God as fill in the blank. But I have to say, wait. We can't just make stuff up. We've seen him. God has shown himself. God is with us. We don't have room to guess about God anymore. I mean, listen, if you think of him like so many do as sort of a kindly, uncritical friend or, or maybe even a Vulcan-like robotic God who strolls impassively through excitable human beings, then read the Gospels, please, before Christmas Day. Read them again, because you will find that people affect Jesus deeply. 
obstinacy frustrates him. Self-righteousness infuriates him. And simple faith thrills him. Thrills him about you and your faith. You'll see that Jesus, when you read the Gospels, is actually more spontaneous and passionate and involved than the average human being we walk with. He's not tame. He's not safe. And he's not the harmless mascot of some saccharine Christmas celebration. He's big, and he's growing all the time. He is God with us. Somebody say, God with us. And then the next three words are just as simple, simple, but just as mind-bending. And here it is. It's God for us. And these three words sum up what's being said at the end of verse 21. Take a look at 21 again. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Here it is. Because he will save his people from their sins. God for us. Somebody say God for us. Now, for some people, they experience this idea of Jesus as Savior. These three words, God is for us. They experience these three words through the dimension of guilt. You don't need to tell folks like this who think this way that they are dubious characters. They already know that about themselves. The extraordinary thing is that Christmas tells us that this God who is with us is actually at the same time for us. Even though we're unreliable, even though we're dishonest, even though we miss the mark of what we are created to be when we take all that in and still realize that he is for us, it bends our minds. You see, he's, he's for the shepherds who were obviously dodgy characters. He's for um, tax collectors who were hated characters. He's for prostitutes who were reviled characters. And as we go through the Gospels, we realize he is for us at every level, at every extreme. Even the people that you wouldn't be for, he's for. And that means he's for you. And that bends our minds. God for us. Now, for others, it's not so much guilt. It's rather an overwhelming sense of unworthiness. And we run into this all the time, don't we, Corey? It's this sense that I'm just not worthy of God being for me. The story we tell ourselves is that God cannot possibly be for me or love me or embrace me. And I don't connect so much to a list of sins that I'm guilty of and need pardon for. What I really need is a sense that God accepts me and owns me and affirms me and won't let go of me, even if he isn't very impressed with what he holds in his hands, that he is still for me. God for us. And Grace City, let me tell you, whether it's shame or guilt or a combination of those things, to be accepted unreservedly is the divine dimension of what the Bible calls, you know this word, the Bible calls it grace. The Bible calls it grace, and it's hard to find grace outside of God for us. We don't find it much in this world outside of God for us. One old friend of mine who met the Lord in high school uh, along with me and then left the faith years later wrote not too long ago to tell me, here it is, I left the church because I found so little grace. We know that, right? But his next sentence said this, I returned to the church because I found grace nowhere else. And let me just take a moment to pause and say, may we be a church that models our name, Grace City, 
There's a reason that name was chosen 14 years ago as of January. We'll be celebrating our 14th anniversary. I found grace nowhere else. Look, can we be a place where people find grace? That's an aside. That'll be a sermon in a few, next, next spring. So Grace City, those who grasp the first three words, God with us, sometimes find it really hard, immensely hard, to embrace the next three words, God for us. The cosmic, grand implications of those first three words can make it so difficult to embrace the next three. This colossal God is with us. Okay, I can maybe get that, but that he's for me? Look at me. Really? He's for me. That's the word, angels, we have heard. That's the word we hear. Caught backstage... A comedian that most of you probably never heard of, but I did growing up. Never really liked his comedy, but um, W.C. Fields was his name. And he was caught once at a performance reading a Bible backstage. And somebody who loomed over his shoulder, uh, he realized somebody was there watching him read his Bible, and he snapped the book shut, and he said, uh, embarrassedly, just looking for loopholes. But more probably, I believe, Jeff, that he was looking for grace. He was looking for the God who is for us. And here we find him, God for us. All right, let's work backwards a bit further in our text and find the final three words embedded in verse 20. This is my title. These are the first words spoken by Joseph, the last words that we want to sum up with today. And here it is, don't be afraid. Somebody say, don't be afraid. Now, say it better. Say, say it with some conviction. Don't be afraid. Grace City, let's remember some basic facts about human fear for a moment. I'm going to speak a little bit interchangeably as a psychotherapist here, too. Infancy experts tell us that we are born with two fears, loud noises and the fear of falling. And you can see it. When you throw an infant up in the air, their eyes go, whoa, and then you catch them and they go, okay, I'm good. You know, so they're born with those two. But by the time we're 20, Jaquina, experts tell us we've acquired several thousand fears. Are you with me? And my personal experience tells me that fear is imprinted on us early on. I've seen three babies born, my, my three, and they all came out crying. And it was very clearly a cry of fear. And I know that I'm right, Corey, because just examine the, the reality of natural birth. The baby comes out saying in its own mind, where are those nice, soft, close walls that I'm used to? Why do I feel so heavy? I like floating a whole lot better. Why is it so loud out here? Why am I freezing? Why is this finger going down my throat? Why is it so bright? Why did you hit me? Fear is all around us in a similar way with many more options for fear in this season of Advent. When we're honest, when we're honest, fear is all around us. What does it mean, church, to wait expectantly for God in this broken city, in our broken world? What does it mean to wait in a time in which God's promise of redemption is met by the despair of the poor and the greed of those who would exploit others and the rage of those who commit violence every day all around us? How do we respond to the trouble in our own lives and in our city and in our neighborhood and in our world? How do we respond to that trouble while we are waiting for God? I read a couple years ago about a, a story about a young police officer who was taking her final exam at the Baltimore Police Academy on West Northern Parkway when she came to this question on her final exam. 
And here's the question. It read like this. You are on patrol in the downtown area of Baltimore when an explosion occurs in a gas main under Pratt Street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the street, and there is an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of the interim police superintendent, who is at present away at a conference on the West Coast. A passing motorist stops to offer assistance, and you realize that he is a man who is suspected in a series of shootings. Just then, another man runs from a nearby restaurant shouting that his wife is expecting a baby, and the shock of the explosion has sent her into labor. Another man is crying for help, having been thrown into the harbor by the explosion, and he cannot swim. Bearing in mind the duties of your sworn office, describe in a few words what actions you would take. The young officer thought for a moment, fingered the keyboard, and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. (laughs) Now, if you're anything like me, to take off our Christian uniform and mingle with the crowd, to blend in and hope for the best, sort of a chameleon strategy for our faith in Christ, it's quite tempting. Somebody say it's tempting. I'm sure this was tempting for Joseph in our text today. When the reality of a baby that was not his surfaces from the words of an angel, I can imagine him first saying in his mind, Corey, well, let me take off my fiancé shirt, my husband pants, my father uniform, and blend in with what's expected of me to divorce her quietly. It'll be so much easier, and I can let God do the God thing with this baby however he wants, but count me out. It's too hard. Don't be afraid. Listen, the fear of unknown church is imprinted on us early on, but there is a divine principle that the angel calls on from Joseph, in Joseph. And we hear the angel say to him what God says to you and me in this season of Advent. In verse 20, take a look again. Joseph, son of David, remember who you are. Don't be afraid to take Mary home. As your wife. Why? Because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I got you. It's going to be hard. But he says to you and me the same thing. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid to love her, marry her, lift her up, show her off, make your family with her and with your son who is coming and and much difficulty is going to come, but God has you. You're covered by his spirit. He's with you. He's for you. Don't be afraid. And listen... We have a God, church, that maybe we would change him if we could. But this is our God. He is never frightened by the uncertainties that we will run into in our lives. When you walk out this door, he's not frightened by it. As a matter of fact, I think he takes some sort of delight in saying, go get him. Just like me, just like my son, Jesus, calling us to to love around us the way he first loves us in Christ, redeeming and repairing and reconciling, it's going to be so hard. Don't be afraid. Listen, it makes sense that if God defines natural birth by enormous change, that we saw in that, the words of that baby, that spiritual rebirth would be marked by vast change as well. It makes sense, doesn't it? This baby, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in us as well, changes the way we do life together. Here's what I mean. 
Church, it's, it's risky business to love like Jesus loved you, like Jesus loves us. It's risky business, this thing we call unconditional love. Speaking for a moment, again, as a psychotherapist, try to stay with me on this because this is, this is a little risky maybe, but in our cultural environment today, where personal safety is prized so highly, I'm afraid that we grow less and less tolerant for the normal bruising that happens in the contact sport of human relationships. Human relationships are tough. It's a contact sport. Too often, too often we decide that we will love only insofar as we're never hurt. And you can find online when you go home a ton of relationship advice centered on self-protection. We're taught to be vigilant and to avoid situations that make us feel unsafe. And I get it, and I'm for it. Don't, Don't mistake me here. Let me be clear. I celebrate an emphasis on accountability. It is good and right to protect victims from abusers, and I welcome the more precise ways we've come to name violations of human trust. The scripture, the gospel, never diminish the trauma of sin and the necessity of repair. But don't let this reality make you unrealistic in your expectations of how difficult human relationships can be. Are you with me? In seeking safety above all else, we imagine that incurring wounds in a relationship signals various reasons to quit rather than constituting the hazards of good and noble work. It's tough to do this work. And the angel to Joseph says, don't be afraid to take Mary home. You're going to get a lot of trouble from that. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to repair relationships, to reconcile. Listen to me. In a church that is full of broken shepherds and sheep, self-protection is understandable, but it's a luxury. It's not very Christ-like. It's just not. If, if Jesus was about self-protection, we wouldn't have Jesus. When we feel betrayed, it's easy to ask, where did they go wrong? Where did I go wrong? But these painful experiences are often not a sign of failure in, the min- in, in ministry or in friendship. Most often, they are an aspect of our participation in Christ. It's going to be hard. Look around the room. Look at the one you're sitting next to and realize there's going to be hard things. And it's okay. Don't be afraid. I got you, says the Lord. Church, don't be put off by the effort reconciliation is going to require of us. Don't resist the love that Christmas demands when the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary home. Listen, if conflict were the exception rather than the rule, wouldn't Jesus be exaggerating when he said that forgiveness in human relationships would be a long-suffering decision of 70 times 7? Wouldn't he just be hyperbolizing then? He's real on that thing. 70 times 7. Are you ready? That's tough work. So, church, we must expect relational conflict and trouble. I would say that conflict in human conflict is sort of a spark in human connection. And to love or, or try to love will always involve failure at times. And the angel says, and I say to us, don't be afraid. Take Mary home, Joseph. 
Repair your friendship, John. Forgive your spouse, Maureen. You can't learn this, church, by watching YouTube videos. You can't learn this by reading self-help books or by following mindfulness routines. All those can be helpful, but you can't learn this. God's love is patient, it's kind, and we are not God. Somebody say, we are not God. So we got to learn this. This is a practical expertise that is not simply about know-how. This grows from a Godward orientation of the heart that understands that God is with us and that God is for us, and therefore we needn't be afraid. So you mustn't be afraid to practice loving and living like he loved you and lives for you. Amen? Worship team, come on up. I'm almost done. Now we come to verses 24 and 25 and take a look at it on the screen when, or in your Bibles. When Joseph woke up, these are words from the angel in a dream. When Joseph woke up, and, and church, the whole Christmas story now hangs in the balance right now. And it says this, Joseph did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son And he gave him the name Jesus. Listen, having heard the angel's words, Joseph leaves fear behind and acknowledges God with us by taking Mary home and his wife. He says, God must be with me if he wants me to do this. He's got to be with me. So he acknowledges that. And in naming the baby Jesus, Joseph, in effect, names him God for us. Jesus means Savior. He names him God for us, our Savior. So if, if, like Joseph, you are to leave This morning, here at the BMI, if you were to leave this morning online, if you were to leave your place this week, you must, and and leave with more courage than you do fear, you must put yourself in Joseph's place. What words are you hearing from the angel of your better nature this morning? What words are you hearing from the Holy Spirit this morning? For Joseph, God was meddling in his life. He was meddling with his girl. He was affecting his family. He was altering his very future. How about you and me? Are you ready for God to alter your future? To meddle in your life? To tell you, listen, many of us like to come to Christmas as victims. Many of us come as spectators. A whole lot of us come as spectators. Sometimes we come, <clears throat> we come as perpetrators. And we go on with business as usual, business as usual in the coming year. But Grace City, if Christmas is real, if these nine words are yours today, God with us, God for us, don't be afraid, then there's a confidence you can have for Christmas that you'll get nowhere else. A couple years ago, I was uh, on a pilgrimage of sorts to visit various civil rights sites in the South, and I took a week to go by myself to visit sites in Georgia and Alabama. And one, on my third day, I came to the bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. And I walked the bridge the way uh, back in 1965, many, many hundreds of protesters and passionate believers in justice had walked. And when I got to the bottom of the other side of the bridge where the violence had broken out, in 1965, I found a young, well, a man younger than me, man named Columbus, who was there to help guide visitors, pilgrims like me, and talk to them. And as I was talking to Columbus, a car pulled up across the, the, the parking lot, Corey, where the violence had first broken out. The first batons were, were wielded on the heads of, of those who believed in justice. And Columbus said, watch this. 
this is George, he said. And George comes here every day to do what you're going to see right now. And I saw this old African-American man get out of his car and kneel by the side of the road. And he prayed. He obviously was praying. And the thought that he did this every day. And, and then he got up from prayer and he started to walk toward us. He was coming to greet Columbus and therefore me since I was there. And C- Columbus told me his story in the minute it took him to come across. I said, George was there that day in 1965 in March. And he was beaten badly. And as George came up, Columbus introduced us. And I said, you must be very close to God to do that every day. And listen to what he said. He looked thoughtful. For, and for a moment, I thought he was going to deny it. But his eyes kind of lit up. And he said, yes, I am. He is very fond of me. God with us. God for us. Don't be afraid. Let's stand and sing, O come all ye faithful, like we believe it. Amen? Let's stand and sing. Come on, worship team, lead us in, O come all ye faithful. <clears throat>